Welcome to the George Washington University Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, networking, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the GW campus in Foggy Bottom. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the sports management program, and my producer is Henry Levy. Our guest today is Risa Isart, program manager at the Sports and Society program at the Aspen Institute. In our chat, we spoke about the Institute's Project Play Initiative and the future of youth sports, Risa's senior thesis and how it led to her job today, and a memorable one-on-one interview with Billie Jean King. Welcome to the podcast, Risa. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here. Well, we really appreciate you you being our first guest on the podcast. Um, I want to begin with, with a question about Project Play. I, I'm sure I didn't do it justice in my introduction. W- what is the elevator speech about <laughs> Project Play? Sure. So first, I usually ask people what they know about the Aspen Institute, and then I explain that Project Play is housed under the Sports and Society program at the Aspen Institute. We're one uh, policy program of the Aspen Institute, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization uh, for the exchange of ideas based here in Washington, D.C. Project Play is the flagship initiative of the Sports and Society program. So going back up that, the Sports and Society program's mission is to convene leaders and facilitate dialogue to help sports serve the public interest. Project Play, then, as our flagship initiative, takes that one step farther. And it's really a multi-year, multi-stage effort to reimagine sport in America. The first phase of that has focused on youth sports, looking at 12 and under, really 6 to 12 uh, sports that are tend to be organized around community uh, recreation opportunities. And so that is the first phase of Project Play, and certainly uh, we expect there to be future phases that look at other age groups and other geographic context, so on and so forth. So you've been at Aspen since 2014? Yes, I just celebrated my three-year anniversary. Congratulations. Um, Tell us about your, did you nail your interview? We want to know about your interview. (laughs) So uh, I originally met Tom, our executive director, while serving as sort of a staffer of sorts uh, for ESPN, which was hosting their annual ESPNW Summit in Dana Point, California. I was living and working in the time in Fresno, California for the Fresno Grizzlies, which were then the AAA team for the San Francisco Giants. I was a few years out of college, and while in college, I had the immense privilege and opportunity to write a piece for ESPNW about Title IX uh, around the time of its 40th anniversary and uh, reached out to some colleagues there and said, hey, I'm in Fresno. I'm not so far away. I'm quite interested in what you're doing. Do you need some extra help? And they said, absolutely. Come on down. Uh, Please join us to you know, lend a hand. And I was sort of an eager beaver, uh, recent college graduate and thought it sounded like the best offer I'd ever been made. So I went down there, uh, spent a week working for ESPN. And because I was working for ESPN and not a guest at the summit, I ate all of my meals at the ESPN staff table uh, and had incredible access to incredible people, uh, maybe least of whom, to be honest, was Tom Ferry. Uh, though he is the one who eight months later asked me if I would work for him. So perhaps he's the most important contact I met there. Mm, interesting. So w- tell us about... Which is to say I didn't have a real interview. 
Yeah. Which so, is actually how sports works a lot of times. Exactly. And we'll get to, to that and talk a little bit about networking and your philosophy to the extent that you have a philosophy about, <laughs> I have a philosophy. about networking and relationship building. Um, that would be interesting to hear. What is an average day? I mean, I know a little bit about your portfolio, and I know it's quite varied, but, I mean, is, is it possible to describe an average day? Outside of saying I'm sitting at my office usually replying to emails and on the phone with people and coordinating a lot of moving parts at any one time, there isn't necessarily one kind of an average day. I think of Project Play as having different times of the year. So perhaps there's an average spring and there's an average winter and there's an average summer and there's an average fall based on what projects we're working on. Uh, but there's, you know, there's not one day that is really the same all year round, uh, which I think keeps our, you know, my job really interesting and fun. Uh, it's a lot of work. And so it's nice to have sort of some seasonality to what we do, the kinds of projects we're working on, the intensity with which we're working, things like that. What was working in sports? I mean, I, I, would, I would describe your job as, as a job in the sports industry. I don't know that you would necessarily, but, but I certainly would because I've seen what you do and, and the people you interact with and the issues that are important. Would you describe it as a job in the sports industry? And was that a goal or an ambition for you when you were in college? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that my job is a job in sports. I would also say that my job is a job in nonprofit or it's a job in project management or it's a job in this wonky DC policy think tank realm. Um, I my, my background is in working in sports and so I still very much think of myself as someone who works in sports and I do spend more than 40 hours a week working on youth sports. So yes, I think it, it, I would say it classifies as a job in sports, but it's certainly a different kind of job than people think about when you think about working in sports. Um, and those, you know, I had plenty of those more traditional jobs in sports as well before landing at Aspen. How is it different? What do you mean by that? I'm not associated with a team. Uh, there, there's, I'm not working game days. I don't work in a baseball stadium anymore. Uh, I'm not at team practices. Um, those kinds of elements are certainly different, uh, and, and the product is different, right? I mean, I'm, I'm working on reports and I'm working on large conferences and I'm, uh, you know, working in a really heady space and, uh, sports is not always a very heady space when you're working day to day, you know, for a team or, you know, I, maybe a league, I haven't worked for a league before or a conference, I haven't done that either, but... Uh, in those ways, it's certainly different. You know, the product that I'm working on every day is different. So one of the first times we met, actually, I don't know that we met, but I, I was in your presence and became aware of, of the good work that you're doing was at the Project Play Summit a year ago in 2016, when uh, one of your assignments was to uh, conduct a one-on-one -on -one interview in front of you know a, a very crowded room with Billie Jean King, which um, it was a wonderful interview. I think, you know, very well done on your part. Thank Learned you. a lot about her. Uh, but I'd like to hear more about that. I mean, that must have been a real thrill for you. Tell us about how you prepared and what you're, <laughs> you know, how you were feeling sitting in that chair with her. Yeah, it was an incredible honor. So uh, I don't even know if you know this, but I was not supposed to be the person interviewing Billie Jean King, actually. Um, the person who was supposed to moderate that conversation fell ill the morning of the event, and it was brought to our attention 
I don't know, two hours or so before Billie Jean King was supposed to take the stage and about 45 minutes before she was supposed to show up. And the question was, well, who takes her place? And, I, you know, the staff person for the original moderator was walking through some suggestions and, you know, they said, well, you know, this person could do it. We had uh, Mark Hurtling, uh, a former military uh, army general, admiral, uh, you know, he was emceeing, so could he do it? Or, you know, does Tom want to do it? Or do you want to do it? And I, uh, I walked over in the green room and sat next to Tom. And I said, Tom, we have a situation. Uh, Shelly is sick. Uh, we need someone to interview Billie Jean King. And, you know, I, I thought maybe I could do it. And he said, well, are you prepared? And I said, yeah, I mean, I've spent my whole life as a female athlete. I created my own major in college about social change, culture, gender, and sports. I wrote a 160-page honors thesis in college on Title IX. I put the entire briefing together for the moderator who was supposed to moderate this conversation with Billie Jean King. So sure, I'll go like read her Wikipedia page one more time, but I think I can do this. And he said, okay, go. Uh, and, and so then I spent the next 45 minutes or so reviewing the packet that we had put together a few weeks prior refreshing you know some of the nitty-gritty details of her career and you know her various initiatives uh writing down my own kinds of questions to add some uh differentiation between what someone my age and in, in my career might ask versus uh the original moderator and when we arrived she treated like we were best friends uh, it was really remarkable to watch her engage with everyone she wanted to shake hands of every single person as she walked in there was no assumption that people knew who she was the registration desk hi I just want to say hi thanks for being here I'm Billy hi I'm Billy um you know and I I was the first time I was on stage doing something like this and I'm really a planner and I uh, it gives me a lot of confidence. And so I was like, okay, Billy, like, let's sit down and talk about these things. She said, we're just going to have a conversation on stage. Like, we're friends. You're just going to ask some questions. I'm going to probably not know the answer, so I'm going to ask you a question back about it. We're just going to have a conversation. I say, okay, that sounds great. So when I ask you a question about this, what what are you going to say? Well, you know, whatever. Just ask me whatever you want. We're just going to have a conversation. How's your day going? Uh, so that was how backstage went. And then uh, we, we went on stage and uh, had, a, had a tremendous 15 minutes of conversation, learned a lot about her, and um, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and, and she was a great first guest to get to do that with. So what would you say your, your takeaway from that? <laughs> I mean, what, what, in terms of what she said, if you remember anything that she said, what, what do you think was most significant, or, or you know, a year later is still kind of playing in your head? I learned that she never thought the end game was to be number one in the world. Uh, as we were on stage, she explained to me that was really an, a means to an end. She wanted to be a vocal advocate for issues that were important to her, and she knew she needed a platform to do that, and she was really good at tennis, and she loved tennis, and uh, if she were number one in the world, people would listen to her. And this idea that her whole plan was to use sport for social change, it was strategic uh, and not something that came after the fact was, I thought, very impressive. And I, I did not know that. Interesting. And, and what, I didn't know the backstory <laughs> as you described it, which is you know, really interesting and, and suggests to me that you're pretty good on your feet 
and pretty even though you are a planner by by nature that that you're able to adapt to new circumstances is that a credential in your job do you do you find that being thrown into situations that you're not fully prepared for um, and navigating? Is that something that you're called upon to do? Um, Absolutely, every day. There's a scenario you didn't expect, someone needs you to make a quick decision. You, uh, There's a, a fire, maybe it's a forest fire, maybe it's a campfire, but either way there, there's something that needs to get fixed or just wasn't thought through originally, a plan changes and now you need to adjust a larger scope of work. Uh, you know, whether that's in my job here or when I was working for a minor league baseball team, there are always things happening, things changing, and you have to be able to adapt. Uh, I like to be as prepared as I can be so that when I have to adapt, I can, uh, but that I don't have to make up everything on the spot because I, I don't think we would find success that way. I want to ask you about your college career. So, Am, am I correct? You're a Duke. I'm a graduate? Duke grad. Okay. Go Blue Devils. We won't hold that against you. Um, and your your senior thesis was titled "Towards a Level Playing Field: The Faces and Forces Behind Title IX and Women's Educational Equality, 1969 to 1975." The only thing longer than that is the name of the major I made up in college. So thanks for having it written down. I wouldn't have remembered. No, I had that committed to me. <laughs> um, so what, there's a backstory here. I mean, how did that become your passion? Sure. Uh, so I was an athlete my whole life growing up. And, uh, you know, I'm a woman. I was a girl, right? So I was a female athlete. I am a female athlete. And I learned at a really young age about Title IX. And I don't remember the first time it was introduced to me, but I remember learning about it uh, and it pretty much revolutionized everything I thought about sport and being a female athlete and justice and injustice. Uh, but the stories I always heard started on June 23rd, 1972, which is when President Nixon signed Title IX into law as part of the education amendments of 1972. It was the ninth piece of this legislation, which is why it's called Title IX. And everything I ever heard started on June 23rd, 1972. This piece of legislation was signed into law. And since then, you know, it used to be 300,000 girls were in high school sports, and now it's, you know, however many million. And we've seen all this growth, and we've seen this and that. And now CEOs played sports, right? And But every story started on June 23rd, 1972. And I thought, well, like, what was going on on June 22nd and June 21st? And what was happening in 1971 and 1970? And eventually, as I went back, I found that the genesis of it, you know, insofar as history ever has a very concrete starting point, was in 1969. So that's where I started um, my paper. But but that was the question, was how did we get to the place where Title IX was on the president's desk in the first place to sign? And then uh, most immediately following what were the next steps that made it a law that has had the influence that it's had today. Interesting. Um, and I'm guessing that you had some mentors, professors at Duke who guided this work and, and were uh, inspirations to you or role models? Absolutely. I My my honors thesis advisors um, were Robin Kirk uh, and Bill Chafe and just really, really tremendous people. Actually, uh, I don't know if they would want me saying this on the radio, but why not? Uh, a few years ago, uh, so Duke's in North Carolina, as most people know, North Carolina is an interesting place for politics uh, and especially a lot of activism from the left in response to some public policy coming from the right. Uh, and I remember a few years ago as Moral Mondays uh, were this big 
movement in North Carolina. It was, uh, I wasn't there anymore, so I don't know so much about it, but it was led by uh, Rev Barber. Uh, and it was um, these demonstrations that would happen uh, at, I'm not sure if it's City Hall or, you know, some other government buildings um, uh, every Monday. Uh, and over the course of a few weeks, actually, both of them got arrested for civil disobedience. And I remember thinking to myself, I had some pretty good and cool college advisors when I'm looking at, uh, mine was particularly in a history of organizing strategy. Um, if they're, you know, at this point in their careers, even still, um, you know, standing up and, and getting arrested for civil disobedience. So mm -hmm. tremendous, tremendous mentors to me, um, also worked really closely prior to writing my honors thesis with a graduate student, uh, who was, uh, also under Bill Chafe's, um, advising. And, and by the time I was a senior writing my honors thesis, he had left, but, uh, took many classes with Max Krokmal and that's where I really learned about organizing history and strategy and oral history, which was a big component of my thesis. And um, that was really influential to me as I created what my thesis could be and, and how I would go about it. So last question, uh, you know, mentorship is very important to students in our program. Um, and, and those students who, I, you know, find mentors um, who uh, become important to them, often it's a great boost for them uh, in terms of, of their work life and, and beyond their work life. So I, I wonder, in your view, do, do students choose mentors or do mentors choose students? How, how, how is that connection made in your experience? That's a great question. Uh, from my, in my experience, at least, uh, I chose my mentors. Mentors have been really important to me my whole life. I can go back and tell you who my mentors were in high school, uh, who even some of my mentors were before then. Many of them I'm still in touch with, whether they serve, you know, sort of a mentor role to me now or now that we're at an age where we're both, you know, mostly friends and I still have great respect for them and still go to them when I have big questions. Um, but it, for me, it's always been, this is a person I really respect. It's a person who I think has good character, who maybe is in a line of work I'm interested in or has achieved something I'm interested in or has experienced something. Um, we have perhaps similar values. Um, and it's me taking initiative to develop a relationship with them. Uh, I think they and professors included uh, everyone's busy. People are really busy. And uh, I wouldn't expect a professor to choose out of all of the students that they see every year that this is the student I'm going to mentor, especially if that person isn't, you don't know if that person's going to be receptive to, uh, you know, you taking an interest in, you know, mentoring them. Um, so I have found that building the relationship, taking the initiative to ask a professor to lunch or coffee, uh, you know, stay in touch, stop by office hours, so on and so forth has been how my mentor relationships have started. And of course, they have to be interested and they have to be able to make the time, right? Um, but it's always been, you know, the onus was on me as a mentee to, to do that. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> we have spent a lot of time together and I feel like I learned a lot about you in, in 23 and a half minutes. So there we go. Thanks so much for getting the, the podcast off to a really great start. Thanks so much for having us and for your great support of Project Play. Thank you.